0: Back in 1996, my wife and I were uh, raising a family, by the way, one of the reasons I had a rough week. It's really bad. If you can arrange not to be an only child, right, Randy? Where's Randy? <laughs> you know, right? Or I had five kids. That was on me. Somebody said that was my fault today. I think it was. But anyway, trying to deal with a bunch of things, sorry. Sorry. But I'm so grateful, as my wife and I were traveling the state and trying to deal with some things, that she turned to me and said, I'm really glad you asked somebody to speak on Sunday. And so am I. So back in 1996 in our church up in upstate New York, there was this lovely young lady, a radical disciple, who started attending, and she met a very fine young man. And I had the privilege of tying the knot so, their five children are kind of my fault in a way. Oh my gosh, who's that young guy in the middle? That's just wrong. Anyway, put that down. Now I'm really depressed. <laughs> nah. Okay, now, everybody behave, especially you, Ben. Yeah, I mean... Anyway, those of you who are visiting, I apologize on behalf of my congregation. Usually I'm apologizing on my own behalf, but uh, not today. Okay, so, anyway... Uh, it's been a privilege to know these people for a long time. I think you already know who I mean, Corey and Jess McGrail and their fine children. Alyssa's running around the globe serving the Lord, and she's been quite an inspiration. We know about that. But I'm going to ask my brother Corey to come share the word. By the way, if you're not aware of the fact that um, they have been serving the Lord with young life and outreach to young people and evangelistic ministry, are you going to bump me? You're going to have to wait. And. Um, And uh, so he's been involved. Uh, They've been involved in serving. And if you've never seen the campground that this brother has been personally overseeing the reformation of up in Glen Spey, uh, you ought to take a drive up and take a look. It is a world-class operation. And I'm not saying who exactly is responsible, but he is. (laughs) Under the help of God. So have I said enough yet? Yes. But I do have one more exhortation. I have a couple of visiting guest Christian black belts sitting in the back. You better do a good job. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> or they're going to come. You take care of it, right? Give a warm welcome to our brother, Corey McGrail.
1: <laughs> Thanks. Allow me. Good morning. Can you hear me? I have to pull my computer out here and turn it on real quick because I need a crutch or two this morning so that I don't get too nervous. None of you would get nervous up here, would you? I brought my glasses this time. Last time I had to steal my wife's. Let's see. John stole a little bit of my thunder with that picture that you saw on the screen. If you want to put that back up real quick. <clears throat> Some luscious locks in that picture right there. <laughs> <I> tell you. <laughs> well, thanks, and um, good morning. I uh, When John asked me to share a couple weeks ago, actually it was about ten days ago, um, I had been preparing a couple things in... Um, what are you? Uh, what are you holding up? I can't read it. What does that say? Putin wants you. Who, what? Oh gosh, they're just being jokers over there. <laughs> Some jokers in the crowd. Um, I forgot what I was saying. Uh, luscious locks. Yeah, I could talk about that all day. That, that 22 years ago when I had hair. Um, <laughs> Well, listen, real quick, um, I just want to say welcome if you're new. I know John said this earlier, you're visiting. I'm glad you're here. I know the church is glad you're here. Um, Sometimes for the McGrail family, it's a success for us just to step through the front door of church in the morning. I don't know if you guys um, are like that, but you wake up in the morning and um, either your car battery is dead or the flat tire hits or... You can't find any more coffee or the shoes don't match or you can't find the hair iron. I didn't even know that was a thing until uh, about a year ago. My wife brought it in. I was like, what in the world is that thing? I had an iron, but there's a flat iron if you didn't know that. Um, sometimes I forget my hairbrush. I can't find it. You know, um, <laughs> Those kind of things happen. And um, so sometimes for us, it's just a success to step through the front door. So if that's you this morning, congratulations, you made it. <laughs> um, it's a process sometimes. Um, I think you're in the right place this morning. It's not by accident that you're here. Um, we're glad you're here, taking some time out of your busy life to come and hear what God might have to say to you today. Um, John gave a brief introduction about, um, about Jess, my wife, and, and meeting us in 1996. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about that. I'm obviously not the normal speaker. I've known John since 95. He didn't know me because I just sat in the crowd at Union Center and listened and heard uh, him. My wife was attending Union Center, I'm sorry, SUNY Binghamton at the time. She was studying music, and um, she met she met the Lord um, and was radically, this wasn't planned. This is not in my notes. I'm trying, I don't know why I'm getting emotional about that, because it matters, right? Um, she, uh, who, what in the world? This is like 10 days of prep coming out right here, so I'll try and get that together. Um, she met the Lord, and John's teaching, wow, that's loud when I do that. John's teaching really impacted her, and his counseling ministry changed the trajectory of her life, and the vitality, uh, the freedom, and the growth that she had in Christ was significant and after that, after that. John's teaching impacted me. Um, personally, I um, was traveling between Northern Virginia and Binghamton, New York when we were dating. And um, remember the old days when you used to have cassette tapes? Well, I had some of John's sermons from Union Center, and I'd pop them in my 82 Honda Civic cassette tape player, and, uh, and I'd listen to those as I'd drive north um, on 81 behind all the 18-wheelers, stuck in traffic many different times. You guys know what I mean. Um, Uh, John did our premarital counseling. Obviously, he eventually married us. Um, We were married in Owego, New York. Um, Yeah, just uh, the Owego Treadway Inn, if you've ever seen that off the highway. That was where we were married um, 22 years ago. It snowed the day of our wedding (laughs) at the end of April. So, um, you know, I should have known that was my sign to move south at that point in time, but I didn't. Um, John uh, is, in some sense, a spiritual father. To Jess and I. And so as I was listening to those tapes, um, John's used this term that uh, discipleship can happen from the pulpit. And so as I listened to those tapes, there was discipleship happening in my car as I was driving north and south and doing those things. So John means a lot to us. God ordained, truly filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, And sitting under his teaching for the last couple of years has been, uh, what's the word? Life-giving? Is that a good word? I don't know if you guys sense that, but... um, uh, my soul had kind of dried up a little bit in the time when I hadn't been under John's teaching. And he's got a way, I'm going to edify him here, and I know he doesn't like this. He's got a way of protecting us, right? Allowing us to relax within um, that protection to hear the truth. And I think, I think we all kind of go, when John gets up, because it's so good and it's so rich. So thank you. Appreciate you, brother. Um, so we've been here about three and a half years um, with that said, it's a little bit intimidating to have John sitting right there because usually <laughs> usually when Tim and Derek or Gene or somebody gets up here to preach or, or David... John's not here, so, so he's right there looking at me, and it's intimidating. My intimidation is compounded by a couple other things. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. I am an introvert through and through, so I love to, I get my strength from being alone and resting in that place. Some of you are shaking your heads. Most people think all Christians are extroverts. That is not true. Half of you are introverts, <laughs> probably like me. Um, And so I have a lot of things that are up here that don't often come out here. I think we got a slide up there that Ryan can throw up there. If you can see that on the left, it says (laughs) what I think, and on the right, it says what I say. So um, for those of you that are like that, we can be introduced now. Um, The other part that makes me super nervous is I have this recurring dream. Uh, (laughs) This is a true story. I have this recurring dream. It's probably more of a nightmare. That I'm walking through the uh, lunchroom at my high school, uh, and <clears throat> I have my tray in my hands, and I'm nervously looking around for a place to sit. I don't know if you guys have ever been in that place. Uh, I was new to my high school after I left uh, St. Leo's Catholic Church. I uh, was there till 8th grade and then went to the public high school, Robinson High School, go Rams, um, In Northern Virginia. And so I'm walking through the high school. I don't know a single soul and everybody's looking at me like their eyes are like soul, like looking through my soul, piercing my soul. I don't know if you can relate to that. If you're an introvert, you're probably like, oh yeah, I can see like eight or 10 of you that are like, oh yes, absolutely. That's me. Um, So that's how I feel a little bit right now. But anyway, I'm a pretty pretty quiet guy. Um, I, (laughs) I often tell Jess after a long day of work, Hey, I'm out of words, so if you want to talk, like I got nothing left right now. So um, I'm hoping this morning that I can clearly talk with you about what's kind of going on up here in my head, and I can just get out uh, some things here. So um, I want to say real quickly that it's, it's, it's an honor for me to stand here. I don't deserve to stand here. Um, for, for some reason, I have the privilege to stand here and share what's been on my heart. Um, with you. So thanks for giving me a shot and letting me talk into your life a little bit this morning. Hopefully I can speak some life and truth to you and, um, and it'll matter and you'll walk out those doors uh, being different. So um, before we dive in, um, I'd like to pray for us and ask uh, God to move on our behalf. So would you pray with me? God, soften our hearts this morning. Give us understanding about who you are and what you've done for each one of us through your Son, Jesus. Open our ears to hear your voice. Help us hear what you want to say to each one of us. Open our eyes to see you for who you really are. Help us to put our biases aside so we can see you in a fresh way today. Rescue us to you be all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'd stand with me, we're going to turn to Ephesians 2. I'd like to read this together with you before we dive in a little bit. (coughs) Ephesians 2 1. I think we've got a slide to throw up here so you can read along. We're going to look at verses 1 to 10. I'm going to be focusing today more on like 1 to 6 ish. So here we go. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen? Amen. Amen. You can sit. So I got a chance to um, head to the Philippines in April and go visit uh, my daughter Alyssa. Jess and I went on kind of this parent trip, and it was a really great experience. It was awesome. It was, um, I wouldn't say it was like life-changing. i have been out of the country a couple times before, but it was uh, very impressive and God opened my eyes to a couple things that were going on in the Philippines we visited this place called Walking Street where <clears throat> girls were being trafficked into these bars and sold. And it was horrible. And um, God opened my eyes to some things as I was in the Philippines. And one of them was this passage in Ephesians. And I and I realized it was in late April that God started laying some things on my heart. And um, I felt like it was, uh, I don't know if you've ever been like this, but God kind of took a flashlight out and was like, Look at this verse, look at this passage, and it kind of illumines off the page, and you're like reading it, and you're going, what in the world? Like, I've read this a thousand times, but why is it right now, for some reason, different? Um, and so, I don't know if it was because I was in the Philippines or what, um, but uh, it was just highlighted on the page to me. There were three, uh, three distinct passage, or passages, phrases, that stood off the page to me in this. Um, you were dead. But God made us alive. Those were the three. Uh, so if you're, if you're like a three-point sermon guy, those are my three points right there. You were dead. <laughs> but God made you alive. Okay? I'm going to say that about 58 times today. Um, really. Really. Um, and so there was this highlighting of this text. And, you know, I had read this a bunch of times. I'd read it probably 100, 150 times. I've known the Lord for about 25 years. And in that process, I've read the Bible a lot, mostly in the New Testament. A lot of you guys have read this 100 times, right? Um, for some reason, this was different. God was highlighting this. Um, and I think he was doing it for a reason. Um, I want to focus on some 30,000-foot level concept, right? Macro level. This is really high level. I'm not ignoring the rest of the text. I'm not ignoring all the adjectives and the prepositions and all this stuff. But I'm focusing on this, like, subject-verb-object thing, right? And then this conjunction and then this subject-verb-object thing, right? You were dead. Subject-verb-object. Conjunction is but. Subject-verb-object made us alive. God made us alive, right? Right? So I'm going very, very high level. I'm not going to dive into the nuances of this text. I really just want to stay right with those three phrases. Um, So let's dive a little bit into the first one. You were dead. (laughs) We don't like to listen to this, right? Um, Paul isn't talking about physical death here, right? The Ephesian people had not been... They weren't dead and they weren't resurrected and he wasn't writing a letter to them at that point in time, right? So he's talking about something a little bit different. I think he's taken a universal, common, everyday concept that people understand to make a spiritual point to them, right? You were dead. Uh, Example um, here, um, this morning, (laughs) I was telling you a little bit about kind of all the things we do to get through the front door, and we consider that a a success to get to church. Um, Think about what you did this morning to get here. Um, You woke up, you brushed your teeth, you took some air in the lungs. Um, showered, hopefully, put some clothes on, got dressed, ate some breakfast, drank some coffee. Um, You did all the things. You probably corralled the kids to get them in the car, or maybe your wife or maybe your husband (laughs) to get them in the car, running a little bit late, whatever it was. Um, I got here. I got to, somebody threw this microphone on me. I got to listen to the worship team warming up a little bit. Um, Now I'm standing here talking, using my senses. I'm looking, I'm seeing, I'm hearing. I'm smelling, I'm doing all those things, right? We all did that this morning, right? You're all, you're all standing here, or sitting here, listening as I talk, experiencing all those same things, right? I can't do any of those things when I'm dead, right? You can't do any of those things if you're dead, right? Just, that's like obvious, right? It's totally obvious. Absolutely nothing I could do for myself if I was dead, Um. I think Paul chooses this term on purpose, right? This term dead. He doesn't say, you were asleep, but God made you alive. He doesn't say, what's that? Right, exactly. Um, He doesn't say, we're wounded and we're limping along, right? But God made you alive. He says, you're dead. So I think he's making a point here, right? We don't want to ignore this. We're highlighting something here that I think the Apostle Paul is trying to tell the Ephesians, who, by the way were believers in Jesus. They were not new... Con- they were, I shouldn't say they weren't new converts. They knew Jesus, right? This whole text is addressed to the Ephesian church who all had committed to Christ, who all had had a faith moment or a but God moment and had said yes to Jesus, right? That's what we're seeing here. This is not addressed to people who don't know God. Because if it was, it would say you are dead, right? But it says you were dead, right? Not you were asleep, not you were... Limping along, doing okay on your own, and maybe a little bit of God and this and you and what you're doing made you alive, right? He's saying you were dead. I've got a funny video here I want to show you real quick. Um, This is uh, one of my favorite movies in the world, The Princess Bride. Uh, There's a great (laughs) shout-out to The Princess Bride. Um, Let me set this up real quick. If you're not familiar with the movie, Wesley is on a crusade to rescue Princess Buttercup, she was kidnapped by Prince Humperdinck. Humperdinck captures Wesley, tortures him because he wants the babe, right? So he's going to take out the guy that wants her affection. Um, Everyone thinks Wesley's dead. His friends bring him to the infamous Miracle Max, right? Miracle Max is this crazy doctor. Um, And so we're going to pick up the scene right there.
2: dead just says no fair.
0: grandpa grandpa wait wait what did Fezik mean he's dead I mean he didn't mean dead was his only faking right
2: What? what are you the miracle max who worked for the king all those years The king's stinking son fired me. And thank you so much for bringing up such a painful subject. While you're at it, why don't you give me a nice paper cut and pour lemon juice on it. We're closed. Beat it or I'll call the brute squad.
0: I'm on the brute squad.
2: You are the brute squad. We need a miracle. It's very important. Look, I'm retired. Besides, why would you want someone the king's stinking son fired? I might kill whoever you want to make the miracle. He's already dead. He is, huh? I'll take a look. Bring him in. I've seen
0: worse.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No. Sir? Huh? You're in a terrible rush. Don't rush me, sonny. You rush a miracle, man, you get rotten miracles. You got money? Sixty-five. Sheesh. I never worked for so little, except once, and that was a very noble cause. Uh, this is noble, sir. His wife is crippled. children are on the brink of starvation. Uh, you're a rotten liar. I need him to help avenge my father. Murdered these 20 years. Your first story was better. Where's that bellows cramp? He probably owes you money, huh? Well, I'll ask you. He's dead. He can't talk. Ooh, look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead is slightly alive. Now, all dead. Well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) So Dr. Paul declares us all dead, right? We're not mostly dead. We're not kind of dead, We're all dead, right? This matters. It matters. It really, really matters. Um, Some of you are probably wondering at this point, so what? This guy's a lunatic. What in the world is he talking about? Why does what some old dead dude said have anything to do with my life today in 2018, right? Who cares that Paul declares the Ephesians are dead? I ask that question. Every time I read the scripture, so what? Who cares? What's the difference? What does it matter? It's got to matter, right? Right? That's the point. What in the world's an Ephesian anyway? Is that, like a, is that like an Indonesian or an Artesian or maybe Polynesian? Then I start thinking about Chick-fil-A. <laughs> wow. Ephesus isn't even a real place, is it? Right? Where in the world is that? By the way, who the heck is Paul? Um, You know, I think the who, what, where, when, why, how matters in this. And so uh, we're looking at this text in Ephesians 2, but I want to jump out a little bit and I want to look at some context here this morning. So um, let's look at the who real quick. Who wrote this? You guys can say it if you know it. Paul. Who did he write it to? Okay, so in Acts 18, it talks about how Paul visited Ephesus, right, in his second missionary journey, and he shares Christ with the people that are in the town of Ephesus, And some of them say yes, and some of them say no, right, to the gospel. Um, Paul wrote, what did he write to the church? What is this? It's a letter, right? Um, We talk about the 66 books of the Protestant Bible. It's not a book. We call it a book. It's a letter. He wrote a letter to um, the Ephesian church, right? Um, when did he write it? Anybody have any idea when he might have written this letter? Long time ago. Who said that? Thank you. I love it. Right, so long ago that why in the world does it matter in two thousand and eighteen? Right. I mean, do you guys ask yourself that question when you come and read the Bible? You're like, I am telling my friends about this. So what? Like, why does it matter? Two thousand years later. Right. This was about A.D. seventy ish, they say. So Jesus A.D. zero. Right? And uh, Jesus started his ministry A.D. 30. 33 is when he died. Right? So think about that in terms of A.D. 70 minus 33. Somebody do the math. Shout it out to me. How many years later was it? 37. There's some argument about whether zero was actually the birth of Jesus. It's crazy. Um, It's not crazy. It's just there's stuff, nuance around it. But for the point of this, I just want to give you some frame of reference. Right? It was 2,000 years ago. And it was 37 years after Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension, right? That's when Paul is on the scene. So just to give you some frame of reference. Um, I don't know how old Paul was. Does anybody know-ish how Paul was, old he was? I'm looking at John like he might have the magic answer for me. Pull the rabbit out of his hat for me. 68? So he made that up. Okay. We know, we know he was old, right? What we do know is that this was first-gen iPhone, first-generation after Jesus' death, right? My kid is, uh, my oldest is 20, Jackson. Um, I think they say like, what, 20 to 30 years is a generation-ish, somewhere in there. So we're like first-gen here, maybe second-generation iPhone. I don't know. I have like a six, I think, or something. Um, so where did Paul write this letter from, right? Who, what, when, Where? Um, prison Um, so this is considered one of the prison epistles or letter prison letters so you you I want to put you in that place here really quick imagine yourself sitting in 2000 or sorry not in 2000 in AD 70 ish sitting in a prison just think about the prisons we have today right think about this back in those days so it's probably a dusty cell it's probably dark I don't know if he's got a table. I don't know if he's got a beanbag chair. I have no idea what they had. Nobody really knows what we had then. But you can put yourself in that place and think, okay, Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesian people, to the people that lived in this actual town, right? He's writing this to them. Um, I can only imagine, as he sits there and writes this, um, that it's going through his mind, and this is just a sidebar opinion. I was dead but God made me alive. I need to tell. I need to tell the Ephesian people about this. Somebody needs to hear this, right? You were dead, but God made you alive. Um, why did he write it, right? I think he wanted to tell them some great stuff. I think he's also trying to establish the church. The early church um, lived off of some of this. these words, and the doctrine <laughs> that um, was established was through some of these letters that were written. So, um, so I want to talk about, real quick, I want to talk about Ephesus. Like, I, I don't know if you guys, when you read the scripture, you're like reading through and you're like, Antioch and Galatia and Ephesus. And like, where in the world are these places? Do you guys ever think that? Like, where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Like, where in the world is Ephesus? Like, do you actually, like, I, I, I try to pull out like my, my globe. I don't really have, well, my kids have a globe. I pull up um, Google Maps We're going to do that real quick because I want you to see where this is going to put. I want you to see where Ephesus is in relation to where we are today in New York. putting Ryan on the spot. That guy is a magician back there. So he's actually opening up a Google Maps document real quick. Um, Okay, so you see that city of Ephesus right there? That's where it is. Now I can move on. No, I'm just kidding. Um, He's going to scroll out a little bit. Ephesus is in what's known as Selkuk, Turkey. Um, Somebody out there that knows the pronunciation, feel free to correct me at any point in time. I think it's Selkuk. But that's the name of it now. Hold on a little bit. Um, So you can see in relation to uh, the the boot on the left, that's Italy over there, okay? Hang to the right, you're getting to Greece. Keep going to the right, you get to Turkey. You've got Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, all on that area of land. So right there off the coast... of the Aegean Sea, one mile inland is where Ephesus was, okay? Um, I don't know about you guys, but I like to see kind of that stuff so that I can see why the Bible matters. Um, There's uh, an area there, or I shouldn't say an area, there's a temple in Ephesus that is still, part of it is still there today. Um, He's going to, Ryan's going to pull up a slide there. So, uh, there's about... I think they say there's about 11 columns left in it. It got destroyed. That's the temple of Artemis. Artemis. Um, again, if you know the pronunciation. What was that? Artemis. If there's a... Yeah. So the temple was to the goddess of fertility. Their goddess of fertility. They worshipped Artemis in this town. Okay? Um, it was known to the Romans as the temple of Diana, if you've ever heard that. Um, This temple is known as the largest building of the ancient world. It's considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is a big deal, right? In its heyday, um, it was pretty awesome. Uh, Kind of a fun side note for all the nerds out there professing or not. Some scholars uh, from UCLA paid a team at Ball State University to create a simulation. Ryan's going to throw it up there. Uh, This was a simulation of what the temple um, looked like. They wanted to be able to determine when the moonlight would shine on the statue of Artemis during certain times of the year, at certain hours of the day. How crazy is that, right? Um, uh, I think you can see the blank spaces up on the screen. That's where you can put in like November eighteenth, two thousand 2018, 1105. I got 25 minutes. I better move along quick. Um, and, And you can go... Did the moonlight shine on Artemis' feet, right? Is that, does anybody else think that's cool, like that you could come up with a simulation and make that and then be like, oh, well, I don't know why they cared, really, but um, somebody out there cares. Um, but here's the point I'm trying to make. <clears throat> Ephesus is a real place. It was a real place with real people, right? Um, this isn't like some cosmic magical thing that we're talking about. Like the Bible is a real deal. It's a historical document and it teaches us some great, great things, um, this isn't a fictional place like we see in literature or in the movies or TV. Um, some of you guys are familiar with like West Egg from F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gadsby. That's a fictional place. Panem from The Hunger Games, right? Fictional place. Um, Archie's Riverdale, it does not exist. It is not a real place. I know some of you are sad to hear that. The Green Arrow's Starling City and Central City, one of my favorites. Still not real. I can't go there. I can't go tour and visit, unfortunately. Bat, Batman's Gotham City. Some of um, the folks that used to watch the black and white town of Mayberry, Andy Griffith show, doesn't exist. <laughs> it was based on his hometown in Mount Airy, North Carolina. Okay? Ephesus is different. Real people lived there. Real people with real jobs, real commerce. They traded real products. They ate real food. They had real places of worship, right? This temple was, was one of those. They had real silversmiths who worked in the community. They made um, little trinkets out of silver of Artemis so they could kind of carry him around and worship her in that manner. Um, Paul preached the gospel to these people during that second missionary journey I was talking about. Some people believed in Jesus and some people didn't. So he started a church with the people that did, Right? Not with the people that didn't because they didn't care. But he started a church with them. And so he's writing this letter um, to those folks. And I I wanted to frame that for us a little bit because um, context matters, right? A text, when we read it, sometimes can lack a little bit of impact and effect because we don't see the full context, right? I mean, now that you picture Paul sitting in a prison and he's writing this and you... um, you, you, you kind of get a little bit more flavor for what he's trying to say um, and who he's trying to say it to. Now that we've got a little context, I want to turn back to the text in Ephesians 2, right? Um, so, you were dead is what he says to them. You were all dead, not you were mostly dead. You were all dead, but God. Wow. Um, so there's an intervention that's happening here, Right? Um, God's intervening. Something unusual is happening. There's a glitch in the matrix, right? There's a disturbance in the force. There's an unusual fluctuation. Um, So I want to talk about Paul. So before Paul, does anybody know what his name was before he became a Jesus follower? Saul, right? So we, we know a little bit about Saul, one of the things we know is that he led the initiative to persecute the early church, right? So he was, he was on the front lines persecuting Christians. This guy that was writing this letter in a prison. He was on the front lines taking Christian believers and putting them in prison. Um, and he wasn't passive about it either. Um, he wasn't a Monday morning quarterback who was talking about what happened on Sunday, he was front line. He was the quarterback of this persecution. I want to read to you out of Acts. If you want to follow, feel free. Acts seven fifty eight um, tells starts to tell a little bit of Saul's story, and I'm going to read a little bit more out of chapter eight and nine. Um, seven fifty eight. So, do um, you guys remember Stephen was the first martyr? Of the church, right? He was the first um, recorded martyr that we know of. The book Acts talks about him. It says, "And when they had driven Stephen out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul." Right. <clears throat> so Saul stands there. These guys walk by and they they lay their robes at his feet. Eight one says Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. Right, so uh, he wasn't neutral. He was in hearty agreement that Stephen needed to be put to death, right? They're trying to squelch the gospel being presented to other folks this This movement that was happening after Jesus had died and the early church was telling people about Jesus, they wanted to squelch it. Eight: two says a great persecution, or on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, then they were scattered. 3 says, Saul began ravaging the church, right? That's a pretty hefty word. Entering house after house, dragging off men and women, he put them in prison. Can you all picture that? Right? Can you picture sitting in your house and some guy bangs in your door and he grabs you and your wife and he takes you and puts you in prison? I mean, that's, I don't, I don't want to call a spade a spade, but I'm just reading the text and what it says here, Right? Nine, one, chapter nine, verse one, and I'll read a little bit more here. It says, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. So Saul goes and he talks to the not the not the just one of the priests, but the high priest. It's the Mac Daddy. <clears throat> He asked for letters because he was going to Damascus and he was going to go so that he could put more Christians in prison, right? And so he wanted a letter saying, it's okay when I get there to take these people and bring them back. I have the authority to go do that, right? So he gets these letters, tucks them away in his pocket, says if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them back bound to Jerusalem, right? He's going out to arrest Christians that's his motivation that is what he is going to do that's important i think for us to see that he's an activist against Jesus right he's actively persecuting Jesus the Messiah <clears throat> he stood in opposition to all that the gospel stood for right he's trying to destroy it he's actively trying to squelch the gospel so it wouldn't continue to get spread If you want to join me in chapter 9, this gets really, really interesting and really, really exciting in my opinion. Um, It says, and it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus. So he's going to this other town, Damascus. He's got these letters in his pocket. And suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise, enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. So there's this intervention, right? Not only is there an intervention, there's an introduction, right? Um, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? Could you imagine? Like, I mean, this is a guy, he's going to Damascus... This is like a real event. It happened. I don't know if he's walking around a donkey or a mule or whatever, but it, but it occurs. As he journeyed, so he's going actively to go grab Christians and stick them in prison. As he's approaching Damascus, he's getting ready to come into town, right? He's stuck at the exit on 84, getting ready to go to Galleria Mall. He is almost there. Christmas traffic is coming, and he is about to get there, Right? Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Intervention, right? Something is happening here. Um, he fell to the ground. So, so, if you know anything about Saul, um, you know that he was well-versed in the Old Testament, right? Um, uh, and later on in some of the other letters, it says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was the all-star Jewish guy, right? I mean, he knew the Old Testament back in front. And so when light shined, sometimes that meant something in the Old Testament. Do you all have any, any stories coming to your mind right now of light shining and things getting ready to happen? Like, Saul is taking the things that he's reading in the Old Testament he's going, something big is about to happen, right? This isn't like a minor deal. This is like, This is a major glitch, major disturbance getting ready to happen. I love this. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? Maybe it was, who are you? Maybe it was, who are you? I I don't know. It's hard to get the um, intonation of the verse through the text, right? All we know is he said, he calls him by name, and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Oh, and here's the introduction: I am Jesus, right? Um, I think that's significant. Um, this is the guy that you have been persecuting. <laughs> I am Jesus, right? Think about his Old Testament roots. The great "I am" was the same one that Moses said when they. Who should I tell him? Whose name should I tell him? I'm coming in. Tell him the I am sent you. Oh, I am Jesus, right? Paul or Saul knew what was happening here, right? The great I am is expressed in Jesus Christ, right? Um, I am Jesus. I'm the Messiah that you've impersonated. You know that Messiah because you're Jewish, right? And you know that there's a coming awaited one, a Messiah that you're expecting to come. He just didn't believe that it was Jesus, Right? do think he could have he, uh,
2: recognized that that was the Messiah. I mean, the uh, Lord. But the, yeah. even today, the Jews, um, Jesus was a heretic.
1: Jesus was a heretic, yeah, you know what? to the Jews. yeah. for him to wrap his head around yeah. that the Messiah had been here. Yeah. And so, you know, they were expecting a, <clears throat> a lot of different things than what Jesus was, right? Um. But there's this introduction that occurs. (laughs) Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. Right? Intervention and introduction. Saul is not a man who is for Jesus. He's a man who hates Jesus, right? He's putting people in prison. A man that rejected the Messiah who is persecuting his name. Think about this. This is the God of the universe introducing himself to a man that he created. Right? (laughs) He's introducing himself to a man that he created. He doesn't need an introduction, does he? Right? Look around you. God is everywhere. Like, you don't need need to introduce myself. I don't need to introduce myself. I'm God, right? The scripture tells us that Jesus is the visible expression of the invisible God, right? We like to say in young life, he's God with skin on Right? You want to see what God is like? Go look at Jesus. There you go. And so this introduction happens. If I was Saul, I would expect God to launch a lightning strike from heaven against me. (laughs) That's what I would expect. Right? Rather than give me an introduction. Why on earth would Jesus have anything but anger and retribution for this guy? Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? I think you are, but maybe I'm just standing up here talking to myself. I don't know. This is a radical introduction, right? It's memorable. <laughs> you think Saul forgot this? I don't think so. I remember. When I wasn't going to talk about this. I remember when I met my wife. <clears throat> she came out of a building up at Young Life Saranac Village, and I looked and I saw and I went, "I'm going to marry her." I don't know why I said that. <laughs> Actually, I thought it. I didn't say it out loud. There was some radical introduction there, but it was nothing like what Saul is experiencing here today, right? So, Saul, um, what does he do to deserve this intervention? Any thoughts come to your mind? Like, what, what is what is Saul, the persecutor of the church, right? The murderer, the imprisoner, right? Seared conscience, Saul. What does he do to deserve an intervention and an introduction? He's a sinner. Yeah. Who said nothing? Thank you, Ben. You should go to Chick Fil A. <laughs> um, right? He does nothing. What did he do? He was actually he was actively going to put Christians in prison. That's what he was going to do. Right? What did he do? Nothing to deserve an introduction, that's for sure. Saul uh, was also kind of the master of meriting God's favor through obedience to the law, right? He knew that righteousness came through obeying the 600 and some odd laws in the Old Testament. If I do these things, then I will be accepted by God, right? That was Saul's frame of reference. Any Old Testament believer who thinks about the law of God, the Old Testament, right? Believes that righteousness is attained by doing what this says perfectly, right? That's what they believe.
0: <clears throat>
1: but he hasn't earned this introduction at all or an intervention. So back to my three-point sermon, you were dead, but God made you alive. I got about 10 minutes to talk about how God made you alive. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Saul gets a new life and a new purpose, right? Um, They start calling him Paul, which is pretty cool. Uh, He goes from that point of this introduction, and he starts um, telling people about Jesus. He goes on these missionary journeys from that coast, maybe in Jerusalem where he was. He started taking ships, and he went, and he just told people about Jesus. That's all he did. Look at what God's done in my life. Look at how I was dead, but God intervened and introduced himself, and now... Um, I'm alive. There's another but God text. I don't know if some of you have this on your mind here as you're tracking with me, but Romans 5.8. Does anybody know that verse? But God does what? Made us alive. He demonstrates His love for us in that while we were sinners, what happened? Um. 5.6 Five six says, while we're helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. So there's this demonstration, right? God demonstrates. It's like, uh, I kind of think of those, like, um, the uh, guys that lift weights. I don't know what you call them. Um, Weightlifters. <laughs> <laughs> those guys that lift weights. Out there doing this demonstration, right? They're, yeah, oh. Look at all this, uh, awesome! Uh, this uh, and muscles are popping out of place, and you didn't know muscles existed. Isaiah fifty-two ten says that God bared His holy arm on our behalf. Talk, talking to the um, to the Israelites, right? So God, <laughs> He flexed on your behalf, right? He he, uh, that's what He is. That's what He's doing. Um, that's how He's demonstrating it, and He's demonstrating it through Jesus. I think it's pretty cool. Um, every good story needs a rescuer, right? Um, someone's stuck, and then a rescuer comes on the scene, swoops in at the last second to save them. We kind of crave those types of stories. Um, there's one here, if you remember from July, um, the, uh, the cave rescue in Thailand. you guys remember that story? Twelve members of a football team. There was a coach, 23-year-old coach, took them all in this cave. <laughs> and they're like a couple miles in. I mean, they're not like 15 feet, they're not like a couple miles in. It's like, that, that would be my other recurring nightmare, other than holding the tray would be like in that, being in that place, right? Heavy rains partially flood the place. They seek higher ground. They find this place where they can be. Um, they find themselves in need. They can't get out. <clears throat> if you remember, there was a Thai Navy SEAL who died trying to rescue them. And then it was like 11 days before the first diver found him alive. And then, of course, I think it was 18 days later, they get rescued. You can see the smile and faces. Listen to this. The rescue effort involved more than 10,000 people. I didn't know that. I was... Read, the Internet's a great thing, isn't it? <laughs> Including over 100 divers, many rescue workers, representatives from about 100 government agencies... 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers, 10 police helicopters, 7 police ambulances, more than 700 diving cylinders, I guess that's like oxygen, and the pumping of more than a billion liters of water out of the caves. There you go, Derek. Well, liters, not gallons. English liters. I have no idea how many a billion liters is. I don't even know how many a billion gallons is, so it doesn't really matter. It's a lot of water. (laughs) So without an inside, uh, sorry, an outside influence, right? Without an outside influence, these guys had no hope. They were stuck. They were dead, in days, right? It would have been just a matter of days, and then they would have died. So without some kind of outside agent, a third party coming in, right? There's no hope. I want to tell you a little um, just story. My wife works over at Orange Regional. Um, She's just moved from the step down unit to uh, mother baby. Labor delivery, And so she's getting trained to do all those kind of fun things and see um, babies and stuff like that. But when she was, uh, maybe, are you still doing MERT? Or was that just before? No, she's not. So at her, at her when she was pr- with the step-down unit, with, uh, she was with MERT, um, something emergency rescue team, medical, medical emergency rescue team. Um, so MERT, she had to carry this little beeper, and she would be taking care of people and doing the things and the IVs and the pushing and meds and all this kind of stuff. And she'd get the doot, 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 doot. you look down, there's the Mert, right? Mert call. We've got a code. There's a code what? Code blue, blue, right? Somebody is somewhere in the hospital and they're dead. They're not, they're not struggling. They're dead. Their heart has beat. Their heartbeat has stopped, right? That's, that's the call. So she rushes over as fast as the elevator will, you know, get down to her floor gets up to where their floor is, rushes to room whatever, something 1073. And there's a rescue cart, right? There's this cart with all this awesome medical technology on it to try to help um, somebody who's dead. And so she goes by and she pushes the rescue cart in and she shuts the door and she keeps walking. No, she doesn't do that, right? You, You push the rescue cart in and you go, hey, good luck. That doesn't work too well, right? Dead people can't reach over and grab epinephrine and push epinephrine and um, paddles and shock heart beats. Or apparently, you don't shock hearts that aren't beating. That's something I'm learning from my wife. <clears throat> Lots of nurses in our house. Um, someone has to see that you're dead and choose to help you, right? Um, right? <clears throat> The cart has to have somebody grab it, know what they're doing, and then implement all the different stuff, right? So she doesn't just push it in and shut the door. She goes in, and there's a team. There's like, I don't know how many people, five, ten people. When they all show up from all kinds of places, and there's this rescue that occurs, right? And the hope is that they can bring them back to life. But a dead person can't help themselves. Someone has to operate the crash cart, Follow it in and get it to work. So, back to my three point sermon you were dead, but God made you alive, right? Absolutely nothing a dead person can do for themselves. Paul says, We're dead. We need a rescuer, right? We're stuck. But God made you alive, He rescued you through Jesus. God demonstrates His own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You were dead, but God did something, and he made you alive. You were dead, but God demonstrated his own love, right, for you, and Christ died. That was his demonstration. He intervened. Saul did nothing to earn God's favor. In fact, he did the opposite, right? We talked about that. Jesus introduced himself. He had previously died for Saul, right? It wasn't, didn't happen after. This was A.D. 70. Jesus was already dead. And he says, this is what I did for you. <clears throat> Why don't you come follow me? <laughs> and we know the rest of the story, right? Paul wrote, what, two-thirds of the New Testament. This guy was the real deal of sitting in prison. You were dead. I was dead. You were dead. I was dead. You were dead. But God changed my life, right? But God did something. Intervened. introduced himself to me, and the rest is history. This is critical mass. I'm going to be about two more minutes. If you miss this, you're going to miss the entire gospel. If you miss it, you miss the entire gospel. The gospel is not about what you do, right? Is the gospel about what you do? But we think it is, right? If I do enough stuff, if the cosmic scales of good versus bad... And the good outweighs the bad, then I am in, right? Paul says, as long as you do enough to get into heaven and do a little bit more than what Jesus did, and he died on the cross, and you add a couple things to it, then you're made alive, right? No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say it at all. He says the complete opposite. And is that not what our culture is telling us? you know you were dead but God made you alive this is critical mass for us if we miss this we miss the gospel take a look at this quote it's one of my favorites louis giglio runs a ministry in um, in atlanta georgia and uh, called passion and uh, this is one of the statements he make the gospel's not about making bad people good it's about making dead people alive so it doesn't mean that your works don't matter but they don't matter for salvation at all What you do does not matter for your but God, right? If it didn't matter for Paul, why would it matter for you? Right? Where does that thinking come from? Like, if we come to the text and we read what the text is saying... And we put our bias aside, and what we've learned, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and I learned that I had to do a certain number of things, and I had to say a couple hair Marys, and I had to let the good outweigh the bad, and I'm not saying bad things about the church. I meet with some guys on Saturday mornings, some Protestant and Catholic believers, and we have a great time. It's a lot of fun. And we get to hash out our ideas and thoughts and, and think out loud. But I was in a place where I was doing, doing, doing to try to earn God's favor and His merit and I was running from God <laughs> uh, in some sense, I had rejected him and said, no, nah, I'm good. I can do this on my own. Or I'll just add a little bit of what I do with what you do. Right? Any of you do that? All right. So if you understand that you were once dead, then rescue means something. Right? If you really believe that you were dead, then rescue means everything. Right? Right? Do you believe that you were dead? Do you believe that you're stuck in sin and needed to be rescued? Do you believe that God intervened on your behalf through his son Jesus? Some of you are like, absolutely, I do. If you answered yes, then you can likely point out your but God moment, right? You remember a day and a time? Mine was December 1991. I was a freshman at Virginia Tech. trying to do it on my own, trying to earn God's favor, and God said, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. And um, I was in my dorm room, and I didn't pray a prayer. I'd I'd been introduced to Jesus my junior year of high school, even though I'd heard a lot about him through my training in the Catholic Church and stuff like that. It wasn't until that moment that it changed for me because I realized there was nothing that I could do, right? There was nothing I could do on my own to save myself. I needed somebody to help me. And then Paul declares that we're now alive because of what Jesus did, which is awesome, right? So if you answered no to some of those questions, would you reconsider what Paul is saying? You know, would you think about this and put your bias aside and look at the text and look and see what Saul, (laughs) is now Paul is saying he was dead, but he was made alive in Christ Jesus, Right? Rescue means you've got to admit you're in a predicament you can't get out of. You got to admit you're stuck. Can't do anything on your own. It means gratefulness. The focus then stays on Christ. Um, if we believe we can earn our own way or do it on our own, then we don't need to be rescued, right? So that's it. I went a couple minutes late. Thanks for letting me go a couple minutes late. Um, We'd love to talk more about you if you kind of, this kind of pricks some things in your mind and you're like, I got this one question, man, I got to get an answer. If I don't get it answered, then I'm not going to move forward this week. Get your, uh, get your answer. You know, there's lots of people here, John and the elders, um, folks that you see up front, folks that you see in the congregation, whoever brought you <laughs> as a friend visiting, you know, just grab them and ask them your question. Um, if you don't know Jesus, man, I would just beg you to give it some thought. I'd beg you to reconsider why um, you haven't, (laughs) and why, um, you know, what you need to do in that. Because this doesn't apply to you. It says if you were to, this was written to Christians, this would say you are dead. Like I was before I came to know Christ. Like anybody in this room that knows Jesus would say I was dead, right? That's the condition you're in, you're stuck, and you need a rescuer. And so let me pray for us, and then we will um, head on out. Actually, I think we have... Are we going to do a song? Do we have time to do a song, John? Probably not. No. John says no. So um, let's pray, and then we'll get on. God, grateful for uh, your, your written word to us in this letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. I pray um, that these three phrases would mean something to us uh, more than maybe what we came in here this morning thinking. Uh, God, if we know you, I pray that we'd rejoice in that. We wouldn't trust in our own good deeds and things um, in our relationship with you, but that we would look to you as our Savior, as our guide, as our rescuer. Um, God, if we don't know you, I pray we reconsider that and come to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.